Please continue standing for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Jenny, for reading our lesson. Uh, I don't know if you all know Jenny Britt or not. She is a, a PK, a preacher's kid, or TO, as we sometimes say, theological offspring. And uh, it's so good to have Jenny as a part of this church, and thank you for reading our lesson today. Happy New Year to all of you. It's good to see many of you back. Some of you were traveling over the holidays. Some folks are still traveling, and we're grateful that you're here this day. I, I want to begin by thanking you uh, for your stewardship, for your generous giving, particularly in December. Uh, we had a marvelous finish, and your generosity amazes me, as is usual, in the way that you have contributed uh, in, in your stewardship to God and to this church. And we were able uh, to complete all of our missional connection, connectional giving, and we're so grateful to all of you. Uh, also, you may have noticed uh, that our denomination is back in the news. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Uh, both in the Tennessee and in Washington Post. I've heard from some of you as a result of that uh, and wanted you to know, I wrote an e-note on Friday night. I hope you've received it. If not, we'll make it accessible on Facebook uh, that I've included uh, a letter from our bishop in response to that. was with him uh, this weekend on the telephone a good bit and appreciate so much his response to this. And it reminded me of the necessity uh, of Brentwood United Methodist Church having discernment, a discernment team, which we have in process. And so it was spoken of as though this resolution is a done deal for the denomination. It is not. It is one of many proposals that will be taking place, and we are aware of them between now and May. And any action that is final uh, will be taken up at General Conference uh, in May. And I know that because I know Bishop Pennell, who is with us this morning, who is an expert on the polity of the church. And so I say that to you uh, to remind you of our focus in 2020 is in disciple-making 
and in heart shaping together, and that we have an open table this morning that's open to all persons who come seeking newness of life in Christ. Um, I am a little weary this morning, as maybe are you. I usually go to bed on Saturday night, but something kept me up last night till about 10.30, and uh, I was so glad. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations to the Tennessee Titans who did something that hasn't been done in about 10 years uh, in defeating Tom Brady and the Patriots in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and what a glorious epiphany it was for the Tennessee Titans. Well, tomorrow is officially Epiphany. Some of you are not aware of the traditional celebration of Epiphany. It always happens on January the 6th, that's tomorrow. So some of you came in this morning and you were shocked to see the decoration still here. It's because Epiphany is officially the 12th day of Christmas And according to the Christian calendar, you don't take your tree down until Tuesday. If you've already taken it down, put it back up and wait until Tuesday. <laughs> Epiphany. The word literally means revelation or manifestation. And we often use that in the modern vernacular today in the 21st century. We often use the word epiphany as a synonym for clarity or discernment, discovery, or having an aha moment where suddenly mystery becomes clear, when suddenly that which seems to have been obscure and hidden becomes revealed. As in Luke's story, it's an epiphany story in Luke early on when the boy Jesus at the age of 12, he and family had caravan to Jerusalem for his bar mitzvah, I think, and somehow he became separated from the family. And when Mary and Joseph searched for him, where did they find him? They finally ran him down in the temple. And what was he doing? He was teaching the preachers. He was teaching the elders. Aha, says Luke, it's an epiphany. Or next week, we'll celebrate another epiphany scene, the baptismal scene at the River Jordan where the heavens parted, the dove descended, and a voice came from the clouds as Jesus waded into the water saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Aha. Or John's account is an epiphany scene at a wedding party in a place called Cana of Galilee. I have been to that place where somehow at the wedding reception, the wine supply was diminished and this rabbi from Nazareth, a carpenter by vocational preacher, orders for the servants to bring in the water jars and epiphany happens. The water becomes wine. The aha moment at the beginning of Matthew is this visit of the Magi in Bethlehem. Now, we often speak of the Magi beside shepherds. In fact, if you exit today and you see the manger scene, the crash outside, you'll probably notice that there with the shepherds are the wise men. But this scene actually happens a little later than Christmas Eve. Matthew speaks of wise men not entering a stable, but entering the house. Did you notice that? And so apparently this is a little bit later, and the living arrangements have been made, 
and they're living in a home, in a house. So it may be later that this event occurred, this epiphany. Whatever the case, the exact timing of their visit is not pivotal to the meaning of the story. But I do want to mention a few things that are. The mention of Magi in Bethlehem is absolutely paramount to Matthew's gospel. The word magi is a form of the word magic. These men were considered somewhat wizards or wise men. We call them foreigners. They were probably from Persia, Persians or Medes, who may have actually been Zoroastrian priests, which is one of the oldest forms of religion, which is still practiced in some places in Iran. These Persian men were to the Persians what the scribes and Pharisees were to the Jews with a touch of royalty. But they were Gentiles. That means they were not Jews. They were pagans. And they were known for two things specifically, for their study of dreams, Freud would have been proud, and for their study of astrology. And as you may or may not know, the Jews had very little interest in stargazing. In fact, they were very skeptical, as are we. And yet it seems that God here in Matthew 2, in the beginning, is revealing himself to pagans in terms that they can understand in a star. We, we don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was Halley's Comet. Maybe it was a supernova, a constellation. We don't know. But we, what we do know is that they caravanned from their home in the east. And this was a journey that would have taken, most scholars say, at least six weeks and perhaps more than that. Their presence in the Gospel of Matthew is more than an honorary mention. It is a fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, you see it in Isaiah 60. Ironically, we started with this as our call to worship. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Listen to this. A multitude of camels shall come to you, and they shall bring gold and frankincense and pay homage to the Lord. Aha. It's fulfillment. The presence of Magi, however, is not just fulfillment of Jewish scripture. It is also missionally strategic to the ministry of Jesus and the gospel. We know this because at the tail end of Matthew's account, chapter 28, verse 19, the risen Christ says to his apostles just prior to the ascension, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And that word for nations can be translated Gentiles. Matthew ends exactly the way he begins. The appeal of God is not to one race or culture, it's universal, it's global. The gospel is not just for insiders, it's for outsiders. It's not just for Jews. It's for Gentiles beginning with pagan astrologers. 
And to me, that's rather amazing. Some of you were with Sherry and me last February when we knelt at a place in Bethlehem, the traditional site of Jesus' birth. I have a picture of it. To get to this specific spot, you see the star, you had to kneel appropriately. You had to kneel in order to touch what traditional folks say is the very site, the spot where Jesus was born. There is a church built over that site called the Church of the Nativity. We stood in line, didn't we, Mike, for two and a half hours just to kneel at that star. And we would have stood in line for two and a half months, really. Our guide told us that Persians in 614 AD invaded this region, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and they destroyed many of the Christian churches and relics. But when they came to this spot, when they came to the church of the nativity, they left it alone. Why? Because when they came into the sanctuary area, there was a mosaic in the sanctuary depicting the magi who came to worship the king. And you can tell by the tone of their skin and their dress, they were Persian. They're a part of the story. And so they left the church standing. Aha. Back to the text. When the Magi reached Jerusalem, they inquired as to where the new Jewish king was to be born. Now, somehow they knew enough about the world to know that someone at the epicenter of Judaism in the holy city would have a response to their question, where is he to be born? In Matthew 1, the question is, who is he? And the genealogy is given. In chapter 2, the question is, where is he to be born? And this is where it gets interesting. Herod heard that the Magi were in town and was privy to their question. And there's a little problem here because Herod is the king of the Jews. He was appointed by the Roman Senate in 40 BCE, and he ruled for 35 years. He was the puppet king of the Roman emperor, and we refer to him always as Herod the Great for one reason, to distinguish him from his sons, for another reason, because of his massive building program. When we went to Israel, we saw some of his architectural achievements, which included the restoration, the rebuilding of the temple, which included Masada, which included the Herodium, Herod's palace, which included the harbor and the aqueduct in Caesarea Maritim, which is an incredible thing to behold. In fact, the architects who were with us were drooling at what they saw. But the question the Magi are asking In the ears of Herod, smacks of treason. How can a kingdom have two kings? That's really the question in Matthew's narrative. His gospel is a story of two kingdoms in conflict with each other. Welcome to our world. Herod's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. One kingdom based on power. The other kingdom based on humility. Herod's kingdom based on sword. Jesus' kingdom based on the spirit. 
One kingdom based on fear and the other kingdom based on faith. This is a tale of two kingdoms in conflict. Now, if you know anything about Herod, and I kind of hope you don't, you would know that he was a tad bit paranoid. Well, that's putting it mildly. He had no tolerance for rivals. Even in his own family, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that he executed one of his ten wives and three of his own sons. In fact, history records that prior to his death at age 70, he had a number of noblemen incarcerated and ordered them to be killed on the day of his funeral to make sure that there would be grieving in Jerusalem. Some writer, one historian says, it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. So this intelligence, this intel of Persians in town looking for a new king, it's not good news to Herod. And the text says he was frightened. The Greek word is phobos. This is our word for phobia. Phobia, he's fearful. Everything that Herod does is done out of fear. I've discovered that fear can be a helpful defense mechanism sometimes. But when a person is always in the defensive-like mode of fear, it becomes debilitating and it becomes self-destructive to live in fear. Is it any wonder that whenever an angel appears in the scripture, the first words, don't be afraid, have no fear. It's interesting that when Jesus comes and teaches us, he doesn't teach us about self-preservation. He teaches us how to die to ourselves. And Herod was afraid, scared to death, so much so that he had a called meeting of the church council. He called together the Sanhedrin, the 71, the priest, all those who were a part of the religious council to ask the question, where is this new king to be born? And they didn't even have to open their Torah. They had it memorized. It's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathra, who are one of the tiniest clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to shepherd Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem. The same place where Samuel anointed David to be king, the same town where Ruth lived before she married Boaz, the same town where Jacob married his, or buried his beloved Rachel, in a place called Bethlehem, the house of bread. And then comes, after that meeting, the meeting after the meeting. And this is always where the rubber meets the road. It isn't in the conference room, it's in the parking lot. It's the meeting after the meeting, or shall we call it the camel lot, is where it happens. Or in the restroom, there have been many appointments made, probably even to Brentwood United Methodist Church at the break, at the coffee time between the cabinet session. 
There's a meeting after the meeting always, and Herod calls it. It's a secret meeting with the Magi. And he finds out the exact time and place of the star's appearance. He relays the prophecy, and he sends them on a, on a round-trip ticket to Bethlehem with one request. When you find this new king, get back with me and tell me the exact location so that I too may worship the new king. He had no intention of doing that. I thought to myself the other day, isn't it amazing how religious politicians can suddenly become when their power is threatened? It's amazing. Later in the same chapter, we're told that Herod would play out his fear. You know what he did? He took, he took out all the male children in Bethlehem under age two. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Pharaoh, doesn't it? It's a reference to another story of another deliverer to another Moses, and the result will be the same. One of the children will be rescued and he will become the new deliverer of the people. Now stay with me, there's a touch of irony here. Don't miss it. When these pagans heard the scripture, they went to worship in Bethlehem. But those who recited the scripture stayed put in Jerusalem. Again, this is thematic in Matthew's narrative. Just look at the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, magi, who built his house on the rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's ironic. In fact, the story, again, will end like it begins later in chapter 21, Matthew, verse 28. Jesus would tell a story about two sons, and here's how it goes. There was once a man who had two boys. He went to the first and said, son, I want you to go out and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. And then dad went to the second son and said the same thing, work in the vineyard. And he said, I'll go, but it didn't go. And Jesus asked the question, which of these two did the will of his father? And Jesus answered his own question. Truly I say unto you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and might we add the Persians are going into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's hard to take for a clergy like me. That's hard to hear as the religious establishment. But Matthew's message, be it ironic, is true. The outsiders heard and went, and the insiders heard and didn't go. When I read that, I think, well, that's same old, same old. 
Welcome to our world, 20th century, 21st century. The gospel of Jesus is not always good news to everybody, is it? To folk like Herod, the gospel is a threat to power. And the response is always the same. It's fear which leads to hostility and violence. To the Sanhedrin folk, to people like me, sometimes the gospel seems irrelevant and our response is indifference, no change, apathy. But these magi, for them, it's an epiphany. (laughs) And they stop what they're doing and they beat it to Bethlehem and they kneel at a cradle and they pay homage. I love the word homage. It means they submitted themselves completely. They became subservient to a new king. And when they saw him, talk about a baby shower. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. These are gifts fit for a king. The last verse contains a detail that is absolutely essential, but is most likely to be missed. After they worshiped the new king, what did the Magi do? Verse 12 says, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now the translation says they came by a different road. My favorite translation, they went home another way. What that means is they disobeyed Herod. They did exactly what he told them not to do. They disobeyed an old king in obedience to a new king. They would no longer live all of their lives in allegiance to fear of Herod. And they found another way. They actually found the way, the truth, and the life. Because once you've experienced the epiphany of God in flesh, the the aha of Christ in a cradle, you can never go home the same way you came. You can't pay homage to an old king when you've got a new one, you go home a different way than you came. That's what happened for some of our youth at Breakthrough. They came home a different way, some of them with a new call. That's what may happen to some of our men in two weeks who go up to Beersheba for men's retreat, and I hope you're one of them. Because when you follow in faith, you can't go back the same way you came. And you know what I hear in that again? I hear the voice of our new king who said in his Sermon on the Mount, nobody can serve two masters. Nobody can serve two kings. You cannot serve Herod and Jesus. Either you will hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other because epiphanies always lead to new roads, new paths that don't necessarily lead to power, but to service. 
They, they may not lead you to the crown, but they'll lead you to a cross. They won't lead you to fear anymore. They'll lead you to joy. You go home different. I remember Robert Frost's classic poem. You remember it, I think of Radnor. Have I mentioned Radnor lately? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I don't know how you go home on Sunday. You probably go home the same way you came. I do. I go south on Franklin Road, past the barn, turn left at the tower, the WSM tower. You know my directions. I have to have landmarks. Turn right beside the filling station, go down Wilson Pike, and finally reach my destination. I'm not going home that way today. I'm going to go home a different way, even if it's longer, as a sign that in 2020, I want my life to be different. I want to be an aha for somebody who's seeking and searching and lost and lonely. When you go home after the benediction or after Sunday school, don't go back the same old, same old. Go back another way. And it may just be a testimony of who you are and who you're to be for Christ's sake. Amen.